We begin a new series today in the book of Jonah. And you're welcome to open your Bibles there as you're doing that. If I were to say, fill in this blank, Jonah and the... Yeah, 10 out of 10 people say that. And I get that. After all, it's quite an extraordinary part of this tale, and, and I use the word tale believing it is historically accurate, full truth. It is the Word of God. It's the story uh, of God's work. But, you know, the whale is, or the great fish, as the Bible says, is not the only really interesting character in this thing. We might also fill in that blank with Jonah and the mariners because they play a key role early on. Or we might say Jonah and the tempest because this is like a, this is a, a, a storm of the century type of event. Or Jonah and the worm because there's a special worm that appears. Or Jonah and the scorching wind. Or Jonah and the great city of Nineveh. And while Jonah is the central human character of the story and in many ways deserves a place in the title, it is actually God who is the central character in this book. For it is God who calls Jonah, hurls the storm upon the sea, appoints that great fish to swallow Jonah and then deposit him on dry land. It is God who hears Jonah cry from the fish's belly when he prays for mercy. It's God who appoints the plant that will provide shade for Jonah and then appoints the worm to destroy the shade plant. It's God who sends the scorching wind and it is God ultimately who relents from the disaster that he has prophesied through Jonah will come upon Nineveh. It's God who even leads them to repent. It's God. So I get it, and we'll probably all continue to talk about Jonah and the whale, but my prayer would be that after this series, we would, we would recast the, the title of this story and include the word and the name God. It's God who has compassion, as we will discover in these next four Sundays of study, that God has compassion not only for a wicked, violent city like Nineveh, but also for a proud and self-righteous prophet like Jonah. Jonah doesn't realize he's in need of compassion and mercy from God at this point, but God will show him very shortly. And you know, we are really in the same place as Jonah. So today as we begin a new series in the book, uh, my, my prayer and desire, and I'm going to invite you to join me in, in praying uh, for God's blessing in several different ways, would be this. God, would you please show me my sins of pride and prejudice that I may repent? This is not a time to, to think of all the other people who have an issue of pride and, and prejudice and the manifestations of that. This is a time to look honestly into God's Word and let the Spirit of God convict us of our own sin. And then Directly out of that, God, would you please forgive me for my sin of pride and prejudice so that I may be useful in, in your great mission. God was kind enough to use Jonah even with his bad attitude, but I wonder how much different this story would have been if Jonah had eagerly responded to God's call upon his life that very first moment that the word of the Lord came to him. And then finally, May God grow in us a, a great heart for the cities and population centers of the world. And I want us to pray together, God, would you save the great cities, and we live in one, save the nations of our world before they experience the coming judgment against their sins, because it is coming. 
So let's pause and pray together, and then we'll open the Word and begin to dig in a little bit. Father, we bow before You, continuing to pray. We were praying just a moment ago that You would speak to us, revealing Yourself, renewing our minds, exposing our sin, applying the powerful, cleansing work of the Lord Jesus Christ that we might know that forgiveness. And as we look into Your Word, we pray that we might see ourselves not simply a prophet from long ago who was full of pride and prejudice, that we would recognize evil as it exists within us, that we may turn away from it and know Your changing, transforming work. Give us insight and understanding, empower us by Your Spirit to discern Your truth and to know how it would rightly apply for us. And so we ask that as you expose our sins, that we would be quick to repent of it, that we would know the joy of being forgiven completely and freely. And Father, I add finally that you would in fact have mercy upon the great cities and population centers of our world who at this very moment are in danger of experiencing eternal wrath and judgment. So show your mercy and kindness, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, turn in your Bibles to Jonah. It's one of the minor prophets. It's sometimes called that, not because it's insignificant in in that kind of minor way, but because it's a small book. It's a a small uh, prophecy, if you will. If you're using one of the Bibles from the seat rack in front of you, you'll find Jonah on page 774. Years ago, as a little kid, I learned all the books of the Bible with a particular song, and some of you may have done that, and I actually don't think I could sing the entire song for you, but I still use that little uh, memory device to help me navigate the minor prophets. And so I know that it's Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and so on and so forth, and I could sing the little tune because I do remember that little part, Uh, but I'll not bless you in that way this morning. So if you say, Jonah, where is that? Well, it's kind of at the end of the Old Testament, and as I said just a moment ago, it's, it's nestled between an even shorter book, Obadiah, and right before Micah, and uh, page numbers are often very helpful for us. So 774, if you're using one of the church Bibles from the seat rack in front of you, if you're not using one of those Bibles or one that's paginated like mine, you're on your own uh, to find it this morning. We're just going to read together the first two verses, so I want you to follow along as I read. Jonah 1, verses 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. There's a character that God introduces to us, the prophet named Jonah, and I want to explore a few things about him. By way of introduction, you need to understand that God positions him as a kind of every man. He represents you and me. And the way God works and speaks and directs in his life is exactly how God wants to work and speak and direct in our lives. Through this short story, God is holding up a mirror before us, as it were, that we might see not a prophet with a heart issue, but see ourselves. And like Jonah, many of us can see the sin and wickedness in others. He was well aware of the evil in Nineveh and the the nation of Assyria, but he was failing to see a a similar kind of ugliness within his own soul. Sins that were just as offensive to God, sins that were just as spiritually debilitating for him as they were for the Assyrians. And like Jonah, we are often blind to our own pride in particular and prejudice. 
And God actually used a specific ministry opportunity and call upon this prophet's life to expose the sin that was in his heart, to reveal something really ugly. I, I want to remind you here that God's confrontation doesn't always come in the form of direct address where he just says straight up, you know what, you are full of pride and prejudice and need to repent. Often, he will bring external pressures to bear upon us, whether through circumstances or relationships, that will push these ugly, sinful responses out of us. And you're going to see Jonah erupt in sinful anger, and that anger is the telltale, the self-indicting indication that he's got a heart full of pride. Don't ever shift the blame away when your heart erupts in sin. Anger is one of those things that most of us struggle with to some extent. But if you find yourself angry but always shifting the blame, well, they said or they did or he was uh, disappointed in me or she didn't meet her obligation and I have a right to be angry, be careful. God may have actually used the pressure of that situation, the pressure of that relationship to expose a heart-level issue. He's calling you to repent in the same way that he was leading Jonah to repent of deeply embedded pride, a deeply embedded prejudice. So while it's easy to blame the world we live in or blame the people you live around or the difficult circumstances that you're facing, like Jonah, we need to pay attention to what God is revealing from our hearts. So he's every man. He's also a prophet. He served and lived in the time of Jeroboam II. We're going to go to 2 Kings in just a moment. He's also a contemporary of Hosea and Amos, uh, two other Old Testament prophets, both of whom have written books for us. But he lived in a time when Assyria, an enemy nation uh, to the east, had attacked, and then at this particular point withdrawn from Syria. Look at 2 Kings with me, if you will. I'm going to begin reading in verses 23 and 24, but we'll get to verse 25 in just a moment. For there the Scriptures tell us that in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, that's the southern kingdom of the Israelites, they were a divided kingdom after Solomon, so the southern kingdom is, is Judah, then the scriptures go on to say, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. That's the northern capital. And he reigned 41 years. Now listen to this, verse 24. He, that is Jeroboam, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Let me describe those in brief. What Jeroboam and his forefathers were guilty of was blending the worship of, of Old Testament Israel where God said, worship me alone. It's one of the big Ten Commandments, right? Well, they were bringing in local idols and gods, and the, the formal term is called syncretism, similar to the word synchronize. So what they're doing is they're not abandoning uh, Jehovah worship altogether. They're not abandoning the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, the sacrificial system, and the Levitical priesthood and all that. They're just importing other things and, and weaving it in. That's just as offensive to God Almighty as if they walked away from all religion whatsoever. This is a grievous sin. He did what was evil in the sight of God. Now, verse 25 tells us, Jeroboam also restored the border of Israel from Lebohamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. Well, welcome Jonah. 
Glad to meet you. Glad to have a little historical note of where you served and when and all of that. But here's the really big deal. You keep reading and you find in verses 26 and 27, God's kindness is not the direct result of Jeroboam, Jeroboam saying, I've sinned grievously and led people into the syncretistic worship. I know I've offended the Most High God. Lord, have mercy on us. No, it just says that the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter. He's looking at people who are suffering as a result of sin and uh, the invasions of a nation like Assyria. For there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. They're in a hard spot. And God looks upon this plight, their affliction, and his heart is moved with compassion. Verse 27, But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. That's good news. But look at this. So he, that is God, saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. God uses a king who actually is wicked in his heart to bring blessing. That's what we call mercy and grace. Grace is God's undeserved favor. And, and there doesn't seem to be a national revival. There's no national you know, fasting and prayer meeting that's been going on for days and days saying, God have mercy, God have mercy. It's just God is moved with this deep compassion saying, oh, the affliction of these people is great and there's no one to save them. I will do it. Now that's the context in which Jonah was given this prophecy that verse 25 was mentioning, and I'm sure everybody loved to hear that. I mean, I'd be thrilled if, if, if God raised up a prophet in our day, in our context, to say, you know, the United States of America is going to be restored to a place of, of societal health and peace and economic prosperity, and, and people are going to come together as they've never come before. I mean, I'd not only love to hear that prophecy, I'd love to see it happen. And the guy who gave that prophecy would be a bit of a hero to us, wouldn't we? Or wouldn't we think of him that way? So I think my suspicion is that at this moment uh, that 2 Kings refers to, Jonah enjoys quite a bit of popularity because he brings a word of restoration and hope, and then God blesses through Jeroboam. The Assyrians withdraw. They're not pound in the northern part of the kingdom and pillaging cities and plundering the, the wealth and resources. I mean, things seem to be going pretty well. But I want to pause and, and say, let's not lose sight of the fact that it's ultimately God who is showing compassion to a group of people who don't seem to be asking, don't seem to be humbling themselves. But here's a third thing, going back to Jonah. A little graphic, it shows a northern area where Assyria had been, and Jonah's hometown is kind of up in that region. So it's possible that he experienced some you know, great hardship as a result of the Syrians before they withdrew. Just file that one away. But, but here's what I want to get to, the final point. Jonah's a man who needs a change. As well as things are going in one respect for him as a prophet, there's stuff at the heart level that God is not going to let rest. And so really, in some ways, that this book is about God's personal sanctifying work in a prophet with a bad attitude, but a prophet that he loves. So that's Jonah. Let's look next at Nineveh. It's a great city. Three times God uses the word great to describe Nineveh. Now some of you already looked at that and go, hey, that's not Nineveh, that, that's Salt Lake. Yeah, exactly. 
one of the things that I'm praying that God will do is to deepen our love for our city and actually diminish some of the frustration that many of us feel right now with the partisanship and political views that are so diverse and it just seems to be like the, the fabric of our cities is being pulled apart. And we need to be, especially as people of God, we need to have His heart and cultivate His outlook for these great cities of our world. And in this book, God uses the adjective great three times to describe Nineveh. Now, it was great, first of all, in size. Chapter 3, verse 3 says that it takes three days to walk across Nineveh. It's a big place. So it's great in size. Three days journey in breadth. It's also great in population because the very last verse of the book, look at chapter 4 and verse 11, and you'll see God asking a question to Jonah, but he makes reference there that in this great city, there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left hand. That's probably an allusion to children because they're the ones who aren't really sure, and that's why, you know, moms everywhere go, see, see how your left hand makes an L? D did you know that? That's like a really profound thing to learn, left hand from right hand. But you've still got little ones there, 120,000 of them, and God's making an appeal saying, should I not have pity on this great population? You know, Salt Lake County has 1.13 million people at the last count. I'm eager to see what the new census will reveal. But of that last count, 328,000 of them are children. And at this moment, less than 3% of this population truly knows this God and this Christ. Should God not have pity on Salt Lake? And some of us say, yeah, but it's so wicked. When is God's judgment going to fall? I mean, after all, these people deserve it. Ooh, careful. You're right in one sense, but don't we all deserve his judgment? And in the same way that God was merciful to Jeroboam and Israel, and Jonah was part of the blessing there, should he not have transferred that out of his nationalism and to a, a nearby people group who numbered in the millions who actually were under the impending imminent wrath of God? It's great in size, great in population. It's also great in influence. And two things about this. One, their, their geographical position. Nineveh was actually one of the oldest cities in the world. And most populous at this particular time. It was situated on the east bank of the Tigris River. And uh, it, some of you who are into geography, present-day Mosul, if that, if that city name rings a bell and would from some of the recent military history. But Nineveh was located at the intersection of an important north, south, and east and west crossroads. The trade routes came right through there, so all kinds of people were moving through Nineveh. There was all kinds of financial and economic interest there. It was probably a place of advanced education, and certainly the archaeology that has been unearthed from that region shows that it was a powerful place and influential. It's great in influence. It's also great in evil. It's marked by two things primarily, and one would be a false religion. The second would be the violence that the scriptures speak of. We know historically that Nineveh was a place of prominent idolatry. And there actually was a significant temple built there to the goddess Ishtar. Historians tell us that the goddess Ishtar was worshipped for two particular aspects of her character. One was her eroticism, and the other would be violence. 
She was celebrated as a goddess of war. At the same time, she was vitally involved in the realm of sexuality and fertility. So this is a location that brags and boasts about its, its violent capacity. This is a place that uses religion as a guise for gross sexual immorality. It is a place of deep wickedness. And that's why when Jonah actually shows up and, and begins to prophesy against it, part of his call is, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. One historian writes, archaeology confirms the biblical witness to the wickedness of the Assyrians. They were well known in the ancient world for brutality and cruelty. Asher Banipal, the grandson of Sennacherib, was accustomed to tearing off the lips and hands of his victims. Tiglath-Pileser flayed victims alive and made great piles of their skulls. Jonah's reluctance to travel to Nineveh may have been due to its infamous violence. Another author writes, Nineveh is another Sodom, an unhallowed haunt of wickedness meriting destruction. Perhaps the listening circle, that is those listening to this, this story of Jonah, would be reminded too of Nahum's last words about Nineveh's downfall in 612 BC. Nahum 319 records, all who hear the news about you, Nineveh, clap their hands at you, for who has not experienced your unremitting wickedness? This is not a town that you would want to take your family to for a vacation. This is not a place where you would likely want to establish your roots for family and commerce or a career. This was a place of deeply embedded wickedness, of deeply embedded immorality. It is also a city of God's great affection and compassion. Isn't that instructive? And that brings us to God. And in this story, he is revealed to us as a God who is great in authority. First of all, he has the authority to command an individual like Jonah. Look at those first couple of verses again. Verse 2, arise, go, and call. He has the authority to command Jonah. And he has the authority to command you and me. Now, Jonah tries to negotiate the terms of this command, but he, he's going to do it unsuccessfully. You know, ultimately, if you try to negotiate with God and work your way out of his clear commands, you're going to fail in that. You're not sovereign. You're not God. You don't have the kind of authority that you'd like to think that you have. Many of us try to live our lives as if we are our own greatest authority. That'll only get you so far, and it will inevitably get you into trouble. And that's one of the themes that will develop through this story. God also has the authority to judge Nineveh, to hold them accountable. They are not God worshipers. Isn't that an interesting thought? This is not Ishtar who suddenly rises up and says, I'm displeased with Nineveh. She's the great goddess, the great object of their religious affection and worship and devotion. But it's actually the God of the universe, Yahweh, Jehovah. He's not even on the radar for many of the Ninevites, probably most of them, but he's the one who comes and holds them accountable, and he will hold all of us accountable for our evil. So great in authority. The second aspect of, of his character that we're going to discover in the course of this story is he's great in power. I rehearsed a few of those things, uh, those great acts of, of his that unfold, and very soon, like next week, we'll, we'll jump into the, the tempest 
uh, and we'll see it's God who created this storm. And it's clear to these seasoned mariners that this is a divine event. There's a God behind this. Somebody's really angry with us to bring this kind of tempest upon us. Well, it's the God of the Bible because he's great in power. This is the God who even controls the casting of the lot because the mariners reach a point where they say, we got to figure out who's responsible. So let's, let's throw the dice to figure out who on this boat is guilty. And guess Guess whose number comes up? It's Jonah. And it's not the best three out of five. It's just the first time, boom, the dice or whatever the, the lot was specifically for them. But it's first time, it's pointing directly to Jonah. It's God who prepares that great fish. It's God who stops the storm. It's God who speaks to the fish to deposit Jonah on the dry land. And we already ran through the plant and the worm and the scorching wind. And it's God ultimately who brings the king of Nineveh and all the people to the place of repenting in sackcloth and ashes. God is great in it. I hope that heartens you because there's a great struggle for control in nations like ours right now. It's between political party, parties. It's between ideologies. It's, it's between groups and individuals, and, and there's a struggle for power. Do you know at the end of the day, all power rests in God and comes from Him. You better be in right relationship with this God or you are in a world of trouble. But aren't you glad that He's not simply authoritative and powerful for this story puts in, in just beautiful relief that He is a God great income. Go to the last verse with me. And we will come to this in time, but this really is the heart of God being revealed to us when he says to Jonah, who's angry, who's pouting, who even says, take my life, um, angry enough to die, should not I pity Nineveh? Should I not be compassionate? And then look at the very last phrase, and also much cattle. Isn't it interesting that God is, is trying to draw out of Jonah a right response to his truth. And not just saying there's human life here that's valuable, even the cattle. You see, they would be the collateral damage. If God actually poured out his full judgment upon Nineveh that they deserve because of their evil and wickedness, the collateral damage is that animal life is taken. And God actually looks upon his animal creation with compassion. And, and he's asking Jonah straight up, if I feel this way, shouldn't you? Jonah, where's your concern for life, human life, animal life? Where is it? See, all life is valuable to God. Human life is significantly more valuable than animal life, but not even God overlooks that life. So while we're going to see that Jonah's nationalism gets in the way of his prophetic ministry, we'll also see firsthand that God is no respecter of nations or races but his compassion and zeal to save rebellious people runs equally through the earth, and so should ours. Jonah helps us to understand the reality of what lies behind the heart of passages like these. Nick read this at the outset of the service, but look with me one more time in conclusion here at Romans 10. For the Apostle Paul, almost 900 years after Jonah was prophesying, wrote these words the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him, that is, in this God, will not be put to shame. Let me pause there for a second. Here, here's what we're getting at. 
There are two sides to the Christian faith as it is revealed to us in the Bible. And and one side is repentance, and that is the turning away from sin that offends this Most High God. And so someone who expresses their faith by repenting of that sin and coming to God and saying, I've offended you, I've done the things that you have expressly forbidden, or I've neglected to do do the things that you've expressly commanded Please forgive me. You'll never be put to shame by God saying, not today. Go away and come back tomorrow. But God, I'm so sorry. I I know that my words were offensive to you. God God will never say, sorry, no forgiveness for you. That that would be humiliating and, and shameful. It'd be wholly inconsistent with his character. The other side of faith, so there's the repentance, the turning away from it. The other side of of saving faith is a positive turning to him. So when you come to him, turning away from your sin, coming to him, and, and calling upon him for the gift of salvation, for his care, for his leadership, for whatever it might be, but the, the positive coming to him, he never turns you away and says, sorry, no, I, I don't have anything in the bank for you today. Go somewhere else. No, we we just would never be put to shame in that way. The Scriptures promise us that. So this is what Paul is laying out for us. Now look at verse 12. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. Those were the two basic ethnic categories that Paul and the, the friends and citizens living around him at that time thought in. You have Jews and Greeks or Jews and Gentiles. And, and God just wrapped his arms around all those ethnic groups and says, I don't make a distinction in a prejudicial way. I'll receive any. The same Lord is Lord of all. Remember how I said a little while ago, he's not only Lord in Israel, he's Lord in Nineveh and Assyria. And he bestows his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Israelite, Ninevite, River tonight, everyone. Oh yeah, even some of those groups that have really created a lot of chaos. Some of the ethnic groups that actually would make us all a little nervous. They don't make God nervous. He says, if they call on me, I'll save them. Happily. Yeah, but they've been wholly disruptive of our, our political system. And some of our communities are in shambles today because laws were broken. And somebody needs to like bring the hammer down on these people. You're right in one sense, but shouldn't your heart as a follower of Jesus yearn to see the salvation of that heart? That's when the violence will stop. When God regenerates a heart and a new individual is born. Jonah couldn't see it. And it's not just because Paul hadn't written Romans 10 at this point. He couldn't see past his own pride and prejudice. And now a series of Really important questions, and and we all need to uh, go with these. Four questions. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Could God write the gospel message in the sky with angelic messengers? Sure. Could God send out a mass email through the World Wide Web? Yeah. And it wouldn't land in your spam box or your junk mail. God could send the message of 
repentance and faith any number of ways, but what He's chosen to do in His infinite, perfect wisdom is to raise up messengers like Jonah, like Paul, like you, like me, and send them. But if you and I have a a proud and prejudiced heart like Jonah to say, God, I'll do a lot of things for you, but I won't go to those people, ooh, walk your way back through this series of questions. Well, if you don't go as a sent one, how will they hear? And if they don't hear, how will they believe? And if they don't believe, how will they call on the name of this Lord who will say? Followers of Jesus ought to be the preeminent example of what true racial reconciliation looks like. We should look with the same kind of eyes that our God does, saying, there's not Jew or Greek here. It's just not an issue. Some of you might have difficult past experiences like Jonah did. As I said, we don't know for sure, but it's reasonable at least that his hometown took some abuse from the Assyrians. But that didn't matter to God when it came to the gospel work. Because God's looking at Nineveh, one of the great cities of that wicked, evil Assyrian empire, saying there are 120,000 little ones who can't tell their left hand from their right hand. Should I not have pity on them? Jonah, would you go? How many other cities and population centers of our world languish in their evil and wickedness today because at this point there's still not one to stand up in a street and say the God of heaven loves you sent his son to die for you he does hold you accountable and will judge you for your sins but if you repent and put your faith in him now he'll have mercy faith really does come by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ We'll explore this in in greater detail, but the greatest message that you and I could carry out of an assembly like this into our neighborhoods, into our our cities around the world is not a message, and I want to be really careful here, of, of social justice in and of itself, but the powerful gospel of Jesus Christ that when it really gets into our hearts, it begins to work a lasting justice, a lasting peace, a lasting reconciliation Uh, And some of you are gifted in all kinds of different ways. And I'm just telling you right now that even as the Spirit of God works through you, some of you are going to go into areas or regions and do things, uh, first of all, with the gospel. But out of that, there will be powerful transformation that changes economically or socially or personally or relationally. It just won't stop. It's just a mighty, mighty work. But if, if you don't carry the word of Christ first, all that other stuff will just be a temporary fix. And when I say first, I mean as a matter of first priority. But for today, I think God would have us to just say, okay, Lord, what's in my heart? If there's pride and prejudice there, expose it and and just get rid of it, sanctify it, forgive me for it, show me those very practical ways that, that I need to be working this out. Because at the end of the day, God's desire is that our heart would beat as one with his heart. I want you to bow with me in prayer and just process this word of God for a moment. Some of you, if you were honest, would have to say, you know, I've been disgusted by the anarchy in the great cities of our nation, but can you humbly submit that to the Lord right now and say, am I disgusted because my comfort as a citizen of the United States of America has been disrupted? Or, or actually, should I be grieved with a godlike grief over the evil? yes but that my fellow image bearers are so near to a destruction of an eternal kind that if we don't see a repentance 
at the soul level, these precious image bearers, hostile, confused as they might be of a different political persuasion, whatever it is from you, but at, at the soul level, they're created in God's image to know them, and they are in danger of destruction. So maybe at this moment you need to repent of your pride and prejudice that manifests itself in a greater political ambition than a kingdom-focused ambition. And I say this with love and all sincerity, knowing that this yesterday was July 4th, but if you are more loyal to the red, white, and blue than you are to the kingdom of God and the mission of Christ, you have a heart problem. And as God reveals that to you, just repent of it because He'd show the same kindness and mercy to you that He showed to the Assyrians and the Ninevites and that we pray He will show to the nations of, our, of the earth today. Oh God, have mercy on us. From the individual seated here to the communities and people groups around the world, some so lost in false religion, some lost in deep immorality, some immersed in pride and prejudice that they can't even see at this moment, but all of us in need of mercy. So we take heart today that you showed mercy and compassion to Jonah, you showed mercy and compassion to Nineveh, and we are begging you, Most High God, to work that same compassion into our souls, into our neighborhoods, into our cities, that the nations of the earth might worship you, the one true God. So change us and make our hearts conformed to your heart. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.